0: Ephesians chapter 6 is where we're at, verses 1 through 4. Today we kind of put uh, just a bow on the end of this sermon, mini-sermon series. We're working through the entire book of Ephesians, but over the last several weeks we've been working on this idea of what does it mean to be a gospel-centered parent. And so today I hope to bring some sort of conclusion to that truth Um, In order to do this, I'm going to have to speed through some of these points, um, but I want to kick us off with a quote from the Encyclopedia of Children and Childhood in History and Society. And so I'm going to read this. I, I apologize, but it's so good. I feel like I need to read it word for word. It says this, By most accounts of history, the Protestant Reformation begins in 1517, and by the early 1520s, Once it was clear that the break with the Catholic Church was permanent, the Reformers faced a challenge of creating stable new churches that could endure the religious conflict of the 16th century. Children were a critical component in the response to this challenge. The Reformers were anxious to ensure that the children of their churches would be properly and completely nurtured and educated in the newly defined Christian faith. Protestant Reformers saw that the family was the um, fundamental unit for fostering both religious belief and social stability. Therefore, they directed more attention to children and families than had the late medieval Catholic Church. As envisioned by the Reformers, the ideal family was patriarchy in which fathers held ultimate responsibility and authority, but within which mothers were also held accountable for the nurture and education of their offspring. The Reformers viewed children as tainted with original sin like all human beings, yet able to be educated in the need of careful oversight to protect them from the temptations and vices of the world. They insisted on the duty of both fathers and mothers to teach their children Christian beliefs and practices and to discipline them with the love and restraint, always with the support of the local church community, Another significant contribution was the insistence on the importance of basic education and the attempt to spread literacy so that Reformed Christians would be able to read the Bible for themselves. The Reformers insisted upon the obligation of children to respect, obey, and assist their parents. Parents had a corresponding duty to love, nurture, and discipline their children. Both for the protection of the children and the interest of creating a stable community. Godly parents were expected to nurture their children physically and spiritually. This included a strict but compassionate discipline. Spanking was acceptable in moderation in order to help children to learn to resist the many vices that the world pressed upon them. But extreme abuse, neglect, and overindulgence were all seen as threats to children. To combat these various extremes, the Reformers emphasized the notion that nurturing their children, according to the Protestant teachings, was one way that Christian parents served God. John Calvin wrote, "...unless men regard their children as the gift of God, they are careless and reluctant in providing for their support." The Reformers knew and understood by scripture alone by christ alone by grace alone by faith alone to the glory of god alone must be passionately preached inside of the local church but also inside of the local home at the core of the reformation was a constant reminder to keep the light of the gospel at the center of everything that we do. Thus, gospel-centered parenting became a focal point of faithful pastors trying to shepherd, equip, and aim at the hearts of the members and see future generations fight the drift toward unbiblical doctrines and disobedience. The reason that the Reformers saw that this was important It's because the Bible sees it as being important. And in Christian history, we would often drift away from from the inerrancy of Scripture, and we would often incorporate many things that were not found in Scripture, such as works-based salvation, in order to control, manipulate people, and essentially form a counterfeit gospel, one that was contrary to the works and the personhood of God. Of Jesus we see parents that it is extremely important from the biblical standpoint and also from church history that we come back to the importance of what it means to be a gospel centered parent that is not something merely that paid professionals do That is not merely something that your pastors or youth group leaders or youth pastors are supposed to be engaged in, but at the the very center, the very nucleus of the gospel is the education, love, discipline, and encouragement that is found centralized in our very homes. Over the last several weeks, I've given you some marks or characteristics of what gospel-centered parenting looks like. I've told you about... Uh, six of these or we're going to cover six of these. So far we've gone through four. Gospel-centered parents, they model things. What do they to model? They mean they model what it means to follow Jesus, and they model what it means to have a gospel-centered marriage. Gospel-centered parents also provide what children need. Number three, gospel-centered parents don't idolize their children or make gods and be controlled by their kids. Verse four: Gospel-centered parents instruct train and train their children to be disciples of Jesus. And the number five and six that we're going to cover this morning from this passage is gospel-centered parents discipline their children. So kids, listen up. Um, and also that the sixth and final one will be that gospel-centered parents pursue a child's heart, not behavior modification. All right, so let's read this passage again in verse chapter six, verses one through four. It reads this, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in discipline and instruction in the Lord. Over the past several weeks, we've talked about what it means for children to obey your parents, that kids, young people living inside of your parents' home, that you're called to two things. That's to obey your parents, and that's to honor them. And and in doing so, you're not just doing that toward your parents, but you are ultimately, as an act of worship, should be doing what your parents are telling you to do. You should honor them, you should respect them in those things. We also see that there's a predominant um, placement or role upon dads here um, to teach their kids, to shepherd their kids, to pastor their homes, and particularly that they should not invoke Undo anger inside of their kids, and we saw and explained this weeks ago. What we were talking about there, what we believe that the Bible is talking about there, and because here's the deal: you're going to make your kids mad. All right. The question is: Are you sinning in the process that then leads them to becoming mad? All right, and just angry. All right. If you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, dads, and your kids get angry, that's on them. All right. But we see here, as we began to talk about last week, but bring, up, up the, bring them up in discipline and instruction. And last week, I kind of flip-flopped it, I know from the biblical perspective, as I talked about instruction first, and we're going to talk about discipline today. And the reason why I did that is because I believe that it's really important for us, us to make sure that we're first educating and not just disciplining when we haven't trained them in what to do, all right? So the discipline comes from taught expectation, all right? If you're assuming that your child needs something, or if you've not explained things well to them, and then you're disciplining them, well, that's not on your kid, that is on you as the parent. So last week, we talked a lot about what does it mean to instruct our kids, to make disciples out of our kids, So today we're going to focus a lot on this idea of what does it mean to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, particularly the discipline. So, number five, if you're keeping on our list, gospel-centered parents discipline their children. All right, gospel-centered parents discipline their children. We see this inside and all over the place inside of Scripture, and I'm going to give you several little like, handles to help you in this idea of what it means to be a good gospel-centered uh, disciplinarian inside of your home. The first one is this. When it comes to the idea of biblical discipline, we need to understand, number one, that discipline is rooted in love. That discipline is rooted in love. It's rooted in compassion toward your kids. In Hebrews 12, 6, we see this of the Lord. That for the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives, God disciplines those whom He loves. We see this in Proverbs 13:24: "Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline Him. Essentially, the scripture is saying we'll, we see this from God himself, that God loves us. That if God genuinely loves us, then what he's going to do is he is going to discipline us, that he is going to force consequences upon us in order to redirect our thinking and ultimately our hearts. That if we're not disciplining us, that if God doesn't discipline us, then he hates us. And likewise, for those of us who are parents, who refuse to do the hard work to rightly and gospel in a gospel centered way to discipline our kids are not saying that we are just showing them grace that we are cool with children being feral but that we actually have a heartbeat that we love These kids and in that discipline is not merely punishment, but there can be a lot of things just self-discipline The the way in which you clean the dishes the the way in which you change the oil The way in which you do laundry the way in which you speak to people are all encompassed in this idea of disciplining Training equipping our kids, but all of those things should be and are rooted in love rooted in love The second thing is this in the acts of discipline, children need to understand the importance of submission to authority and having healthy fear. One of the things that is very important for us to be teaching our kids is that they are always going to have a boss, they're always going to have someone that is over them. Whether that's a parent, and once they leave the parent's home, they're probably going to have a boss. All right. Even CEOs of companies, if they're married and they go home to a wife or to a husband, they got a boss. They got someone who has authority in their lives, someone who is speaking over them. And so not only is our discipline supposed to be rooted in love, but our discipline helps to teach our children that there is the concept of authority and that you are to submit. As we've seen inside of the book of Ephesians, we saw that, in ephesians the the next few verses 5 through 10 or whatever about the idea of employees and how we're supposed to react that that discipline and submission is god at work in trying to sanctify you and teach you his ways this is all as a shadow or a reflection of what it means to submit to jesus what does it mean to submit to god and you submitting to your parents and teaching that submission and mutually submitting to each other inside of the marriage covenant, then you are showing this idea and this biblical principle of submission. All right, number three. Gospel-centered discipline addresses issues immediately and is consistent. Gospel-centered discipline addresses issues immediately and is consistent. So I'll be confessional, parents. We have entered a new time, a new era. And this era is called the one, two, three era. You see little Johnny, that viper in a diaper, doing something he's not supposed to be doing. And what do you do? Our immediate reaction is often to go, don't make me count the three. Like there's great cussing in the word three. All right, <laughs> like there's just great horror. I mean, we, we, we teach this, instead of addressing it immediately, we have taught, hey, don't you do that, if you do that again, right, and they do it again, and then what do you do? If you do that again, mommy said, don't do that, if you do that again, right, or we say this, I'm going to count to three, one, you stare and the kid's just looking at you, two, Right? Two and a half, I lost count, good for you, that's grace, one, two, and then you holler for your husband, or you holler for your wife, right? I mean, it is, this is extremely dangerous, all right? Now, confessionally, everything that I'm going to talk about screwed up today, I have screwed it up or if I've been majorly convicted about anything in the last three weeks is wrestling through gospel-centered parenting uh, like I have. But here's the danger of the one, two, three, or procrastinating and not addressing every single disobedience in your child. Something that you're teaching them indirectly. Is that every one of us, when we do that, we're teaching them delayed disobedience or delayed disobedience. This, this idea that, that it's okay to be rebellious. And you're teaching them three times if you do the one, two, three method that they can be rebellious over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, which then in turn becomes the normal practice of their life, that they feel they know how to push you, they know where the boundary is, instead of immediately responding to the request of the parent. They are pushing you. And yet when we see inside of the scripture is God's expectation of his children, is that the idea of delayed obedience? No. God says it and you do it. The idea is immediately we're to respond to God and to do what God wants us to say. If we're going to be gospel-centered in our discipline, we must address issues immediately and be consistent. Your kid's sin is not cute. My kid's sin is not cute. It is sin. I mean, Jesus went to a nasty, bloody, just used cross and drank the wrath of God for what many parents are calling cute. And they're putting up with, instead of immediately addressing inside of disciplinary action within the confounds of the gospel. Number four, it's important for us inside of gospel-centered discipline to make sure that we are communicating with your child in the process. That you're communicating, that you're having conversation with them. All right? The um, pat on the bottom, out of nowhere... Is not healthy. Silence in the midst of discipline is unhealthy. It's important for us to be communicating and specifically communicating inside of discipline the use of Scripture. To use Scripture not as a wielding sword. All right, don't pull out revelation just all of a sudden without some context here of going revelation, revelation, liars go to hell, liars go to hell. All right, burn, burn, burn. Be careful with just wielding it as a sword um, without precision. So if you're a child, I know none of your kids ever backtalk you. Liars. I know that they're never a smart aleck toward you. I know that your kids are never a jerk toward you. But have you ever noticed that the Bible talks a lot about the tongue? And about the importance of taming that tongue? And also that out of your mouth, the heart, what? Speaks. So, because ultimately, if you're trying to discipline your kid, what are you trying to get them to? You're trying to get them to Jesus. You're trying to get them to the importance of God's Word, that He is the ultimate authority. And yet, parents, if you don't know the Word, then it's it's very much so that you're probably not using God's Word in the communication of your kids toward their disciplinary action. That's why you've got to model what it means to be a Christian. In this communication, you need to ask questions to make sure that they understand why they are being disciplined. Simply saying because I said so, is not healthy. Is it true? Should they do it just because you said so? Heck yeah, they should. What did we just learn about? They need to teach them submission. That There needs to be a healthy reverence and response there toward you as their parents. But remember, parents, you are the parent. So communicating to them and making sure that you're asking this questions, there should be much more dialogue on your part also the importance of asking them to repeat back to you what they have done wrong that they can verbalize that they can confess that they can make the connection points of why is daddy upset why is mommy upset that you can help them to formulate in their minds that typically can't process those things themselves that you're helping them to paint the picture of what was the transgression and what was the response All right, number five. Make sure the consequences are painful, without becoming abusive. All right. Make sure that the consequences are painful. What do I mean by this? Well, I knew I grew up in a different time. All right. People spanked their kids. I know. Don't send emails. You send emails to my parents. They wore me out. All right? And and we see that there's not a biblical command for you to spank your kids, but there is great encouragement for you to do that. And when we're talking about spanking our kids or punishing our kids, it's important that we realize we're not talking about abuse here. And there's a great difference between uh, spanking your children And abuse, all right? But we see inside of this that we need to make sure that whatever the consequences are, if that's a spanking, if that's grounding, if that's sticking your nose in the corner, um, that's to each his own. But you need to make sure that the consequence is painful. Now, my mama used to wear me out. And one of the things that she used to do for uh, my sister and I that made us just humiliated was that if we were in the living room and we had done something that she we weren't supposed to do, then she would make us go back to their dresser, and we knew which drawer was the belt drawer. So imagine as a kid, I mean, you know, it's like the Green Mile. Walking a mile, boss. All right? Walking a mile. And you, I mean, that hallway in that old country house I grew up in seemed like it was a mile long. And I remember one time, me and my sister, we got crafty, because again, we're lost. So we go inside of the dresser, and we pull out the belt drawer, and it's filled with all sorts of belts. There's the big leather one, like I I typically wear. My daddy wore one like that. My grandfather wore one like that. And then mama's got all kinds of belts in there. And she's also got something called sashes. This is the 80s. Women wear sashes. Okay, And so we went back to the green mile, walked that hallway, went into the dresser, pulled out the dresser drawer, and we thought, man, we're going to bring Mama a belt. Mistake. We walked Mama back a sash, scarf, and handed that to my Mama. Unwise decision okay? We got it much, much worse. Why? Because we were wanting the consequences of our sin not to hurt. Mama made sure it hurt that day, okay? And I can tell you this, we learned a great lesson. We never brought Nana ever again the cloth belt from her drawer. We knew what she meant, it was something that if, if you were to, to take away something from a child that they don't care anything about, then that it's not causing a proper consequence for that kid. All right? Now, within the confines of that, we need to make sure that we aren't punishing childishness. that we are punishing sin. And there's a difference there, okay? If your kid sits down at the counter and is having um, uh, you know, their breakfast and they spill their milk everywhere, that is not a sin. That's being a kid. Punishing a kid for spilt milk is inappropriate. It's wrong. It's, it's borderline abuse. You can't punish a kid for being a child, but you do punish a kid for every time he or she is engaged in sin. Abuse is always not physical as well. Abuse can also be neglectful. And the gospel is anti-abuse and neglect. Therefore, we as parents must also be anti those things. Parents, inside of this idea of discipline, it's, it's extremely important for us to get this, that responding in your child's sin with more sin is wrong. I don't care what your kid has done. We become, for instance, I cards on the table. We're, we're spankers at our house. We've not had to do that in a very long time. Thanks be to God. I hate doing it, um, but it is for the best of my kid, and that we we practice that. However, when your child. Is hitting another kid and you spank them right after hitting another kid that doesn't connect for them in most cases all right I'm not saying that there's never time to spank I'm pro spanking but it's got to make sure that in in doing this that if if you're losing your ever-loving mind and your daddy if you're like me I mean you're bull stomping I mean, you feel like you can rip a door off a hinge to get to your kid. If you're losing your mind, if, you're, if you are right, but dads or moms, if you're right, but at the top of your voice, guess what you are? You're wrong. And so you're trying to fix sin with more sin. The calmest people in the room during discipline should be the parents. Because once you've elevated your voice to a place where it should not go, and you're making personal attacks at your kid, not only does your kid need to be spanked, but you and I need to be spanked as well. And if you don't think that God won't do that, just read the Scripture. We see that even if if a husband is continually harsh to his wife, what does the Bible say? That God doesn't even hear that man's prayers. So the Lord will discipline you, parents. It just looks typically different. Than the way in which your kids are being disciplined. In Hebrews twelve eleven, it tells us speaking of God toward us, but I think that there are implications for us as parents. In Hebrews twelve eleven, it says, "For the moment, all discipline seems painful, rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it." And I can honestly say, as a person who was disciplined, I'm so thankful that my parents did that. It was not fun in the moment, but I've seen great joy in the realization of what my parents were trying to teach me, especially once I had kids of my own. I didn't understand it when I was in the midst of it. But I definitely understand it now and thankful for it, see the fruit of it. All right, number six inside this idea of gospel uh, discipline. I want to encourage you parents, as I think the scripture would imply this, is that seek reconciliation and restoration immediately with that kid. Seek reconciliation and restoration immediately with that child. What do I mean by that? I'm saying in this conversation, as you're being calm and, and as you administer discipline, whether that's a, a spanking or grounding or the nose in the corner, whatever seems to work for your kid, and you need to get this. I, haven't said, I didn't put this in my notes, but you need to understand that you need to discipline your kids and raise them up differently because they are different kids. And applying one kind of blanket way of doing things on each one of your kids doesn't typically work. Why? Because each one of your kids are individuals. But as soon as that disciplinary action is over, then you should in turn be pursuing reconciliation and restoration of that kid. Now, I'm not saying, parents, unless you've sinned in their sin, you need to seek forgiveness. I'm not saying, though, if you've done it healthy in a biblical manner, that you say, I'm sorry for spanking you. Because that totally confuses the kid as well. But what I am saying is this idea of running to them, of pursuing them. It's, it's not that they need, to be un, they need to understand that it's not that they are, are just completely removed and kicked out of the home. But they need to know that, that you love them and that you can move on from this pain, this sorrow, from this discipline. As a kid, I, my dad was a big old man. And uh, my mom would often, uh, you know, get on to me and my sister for something, and she would wear us out, but then she would also say things like this, now you wait till your daddy got home. See, I never got spanked in school, because I knew I was going to get two more spankings once I got home. I was going to get spanked from my mama, and then when my daddy got home, I was going to get spanked again. But me and my sister will tell you, man, I would much rather have gotten spanked by my dad than ever gotten spanked by my mom. Why? Because here's the deal. My mom, she was this kind of mom. She would get onto you. She would talk to you about it. Then she would spank you. And then for the next week, guess what she would constantly be reminding you of? All the ways you screwed up that led to the punishment, right? Dad was, I mean, brute force, And then it was over. Then it was done. I've only been spanked by one person outside of my dad and my mom, and that was my grandfather before I was ever in school. I don't even remember what I did, but I cannot get out of my mind the sight of my preacher, about five foot seven, round, uh, Pentecostal uh, grandfather chasing after me, and as he's running, it's like in slow motion, and he's taking off that belt And he folds it up, and I mean, I'm just, I'm looking back at him, just, and my grandfather's like Indiana Jones and me with that belt, whack, whack. And you know, the second, the only other thing that I remember from that story was as soon as it was over, he handed me a a baby kitten, because we had had kittens. You think that's weird. I still hate cats. I, I do hate cats, but uh, that's a whole different sermon. All right. But I understand what my grandfather was trying to do. You're still my grandson. I still love you. That's the way. And then that's what I saw my daddy do, all growing up. Now, Mama, she had some. Ooh, she make you feel bad for a long time. She pull out that filing cabinet. Remember, in 1982. You did, blah, 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 blah. She's scrolling it. But Dad couldn't remember yesterday. Boy, I don't remember the last time I spanked you. I'm like, it was yesterday, right? <laughs> but it was over with Dad. He'd be like, now, now, son, get those big, huge eyes, wear me out, and be like, now, let's go play some Nintendo, uh, uh, all right? And then that's what happened with Dad. But mom, it was like this perpetual thing. She wanted us to know. Parents, be more like my dad in that moment. Take care of business. Let it be swift. Let it be deadly. Let it be over. Because the, the, here's the temptation. The temptation is, again, is for you to respond to their sin in sin. The idea is, is that we are not to withhold forgiveness. We're not to be resentment or hold resentment toward our kids, or or just to keep this idea of broken fellowship with our kids. We we get this mentality I'm gonna spank you, but then I'm gonna continue to make you to feel bad for this. I want you to feel the pain a little bit longer. That is not forgiveness. Forgiveness is you address the issue in truth and grace, and then you administer reconciliation and restoration. You move about your life business. You don't keep compiling consequences upon our kids because this is what Jesus has done for us. The last thing, number seven. The home should be filled with fun and discipline. As we often say here, the idea of a lot of rules That relationship will always lead to rebellion inside of your kids. The more and deeper relationship that you have with your kids, the more appreciative they will be when you are trying to discipline them. Your house should be filled with laughter. It should not get really quiet every time dad walks into the house. And you're wondering, well, what's daddy going to do today? But the idea is that there should be lots of laughter. There should be lots of fun. The best way I love to describe this, we're a family that loves going to Walt Disney World. You can hate me, Southern Baptist, if you want. It's awesome. All right? Um, it's fun. It's a lot of fun there. Um, and uh, we enjoy this. Our kids really like this. I never grew. Up, I grew up going to a lot of theme parks, but I never really liked the rides until I had my own kids and saw the joy on their faces. So I ride lots of things today. Um, I just I love seeing my kids. I love to watch them ride. And so roller coasters are really awesome. Rides are really, really, really fun. There's screaming. There's laughter. There's all these sorts of things. As long as that ride stays on the track, because as soon as that ride comes off that track, then there is collateral damage and death everywhere. There needs to be lots of fun in your house. There needs to be lots of of laughter inside of your house. There needs to be lots of enjoyment and, and involvement and lots and lots of fun. Your kids should describe your home as fun, but with boundaries. Because the boundaries enable the fun take place. Get that. All right, the second thing today, all of this idea of discipline leads into this. The gospel-centered parents pursue a child's heart, not behavior modification. Gospel-centered parents pursue a child's heart, not behavior modification. According to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, what do we see? How are we all described outside of Jesus? That we are children of wrath. All right? It doesn't say princess. It says children of wrath. She may be your DNA, your princess, but I want you to know, again, that child of yours, apart from Jesus, is a wretch, totally depraved human being sin is not just something that they do but sin is their identity it is what is resting inside of them good behavior does not come naturally please do not misquote me with what I'm about to say I am pro-doctor I am pro-medicine I go to doctors I take medicine these are gifts from God However, I work a lot with college students. I was a youth pastor for years and years and years and years and years. Now I work um, with, with college students up at Western and have now done that for going on 10 years. And though medication and going to doctors is extremely valuable and important, I want us to understand something. We currently live in a society where we are often trying to medicate the sinful nature. There are kids. I was one of those. I get it. Special circumstances. I I get it, parents. But I'm telling you, and working with college students who are very open and honest with me, what I see often, more often than none, is that we are trying to take a spiritual problem and we're trying to cover it up, numb it just a little bit, and we're trying to do that with medication, and it is a spiritual problem. The spiritual problem is that your kid is lost, and we got to stop pretending like they're saints. dangerous for us to do this apart from Jesus your kid is lost one of the quotes from gospel from the gospel power parenting great book says this the heart of the problem is the heart excuse me the heart of the problem is a problem heart in Proverbs 22:15, folly is bound up in the heart of a child but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. In Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Parents, in our gospeling of our kids, we must make sure that we're making war against our desire to simply have our kids be compliant. And can I just step out, time out for a second? Man, I just want my kids to be compliant. How about you? I just want them to do what I say. We got the war against the mentality of just wanting our kids to be compliant it doesn't take the gospel for you to have moral good behaving kids it doesn't the bible presses into us as parents and i know it's like man can can we just have one meal can we just have one night where somebody isn't screaming or, don't want or rolling their eyes. I'll roll those eyes one more time. I mean, can we just not have one calm evening? Anybody with me? Praying for Jesus to come back or one calm evening. You just, just. I mean, you just want to lose all sanctification, in hoping for your kids to get across. They need to shut the heck up go to your room, right? I mean, you're just begging because you're so tired from everything that you've done and now second shift has started and you are beat and you are wore out and you just want, can we have just, because one meal, one board game activity, one thing where it just all seems to flow and that never seems to happen. The Bible is not just after your kids being compliant and, 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 and being Christian, We're not into just trying to condition our kids to do what we say. And this is a deeply rooted, serious issue in the non Christian world, but specifically in the church. We will award good morals. And call it salvation. It's known that a lot of people who have left the church in college or early marriage return after having kids. Not because it has anything to do with Jesus. But they want their kids to behave and to learn the difference between right and wrong. I've heard things like this, that this is the I, I I come to church, hey, can we just always talk about marriage? Can we always talk about what it means to be a parent? Because I, I'm just convinced I know that being raising them in the church, raising them about Christianity, that this is simply the the best way for them to learn how to live. I don't want to get them in trouble in school. I don't want them to smoke weed or or to be put into jail. I just want, you know, I want little Susie and little Johnny to to just get this good moral education. And we will focus a lot on behaviors. Our temptation is to to bribe, bribe, threaten, and to shame to try to get the correct behavior out of our kids. I'm pro-public school, I'm pro-home school, pro-private school. Having worked inside of, of public school systems though, and even inside of the college setting, I see this all the time because we're trying to constantly give incentives for what students and what kids should just be doing, because it's the right thing to do. But We overtly bribe them, we one, two, three, threaten them But I want you to know that this is not the gospel. This is the world. The law was never meant to save. But it was to reveal that we need a Savior. When when we had the law with no Savior, all we can do is produce moral kids with blackened Hearts. Remember that God is not simply after the right behavior, but he is after the right motivation. God desires change when a person is convicted of sin and sees Christ as being more valuable than the action that they are wanting to do in that moment. Our temptation, brothers and sisters in Christ, is that we're not creating Christians. We're not seeing the making of disciples, but we're seeing the creation of little Pharisees. These little Pharisees running around, pointing out all the wrongs that others are doing, being puffed up and proud. Being a good citizen is not being Christ-like. Non-Christians want their kids to be good. Two weeks ago, after preaching this sermon, I went into Kroger, To get something um, for our family for that day. And as I'm standing there and the ladies are getting checked out, the lady who was checking me out knew the two ladies who were in front of me. And they were talking about a young lady. I think it was this uh, mother, the cashier's daughter. And they were talking about her. And I think that she'd been making some wild decisions. And so these ladies were asking her, and I'm just like, man, I just want whatever I've got here, right? And 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 the lady goes the cashier tells the lady she's like yeah we've even we've got her going to church every Sunday but not even that's working see they're wanting behavior modification they weren't wanting her heart and soul to be changed this should be a daunting statistic to us all of the research shows that between 60 and 80 percent of children who grow up in a Christian home will leave the faith as they enter college. But I want us to get this. This does not mean that these students are becoming atheists. Atheist atheism is not the fastest-growing religion in the world. But something else is. A group of psychologists or sociologists, Christian Smith and Melinda Denton, wrote a book, and it's called Soul Searching. I would encourage you all to get it and to read it in the follow-ups from that book where they studied about 3,700 teenagers from, for five to six years about the spiritual lives of American teenagers. Their research showed the following five beliefs of American teenagers. See if you agree with these. Number one, teenagers believe that there is a creator God. Number two, God desires for us to be good, nice, and fair. Number three, The main purpose of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. Number four, God is near but not really involved in our lives until we are having trouble in our lives. Then we can pray and he will come and help us. Number five, good people get rewarded when they die. This sounds just like class I had in college this last week where a student looked at me And we were talking about homosexuality. We were talking about gender issues. We were talking about abortion. And this girl raises her hand. She goes, I just want everybody to know, like, I'm a Christian. And you need to understand that God is ultimately about your happiness. And that if you want to do whatever you want to do, then God is for you to do that. Because he's ultimately concerned about your happiness. You know, at first glance, these five things maybe sound exactly the way that you believe. They sound pretty good, right? If you had a kid make it all the way to college and they believe that there's a creator God and, and, and that uh, the main purpose in life is for us to be happy and that God wants us to be good people and he wants us to be nice and he wants to, us to treat people fairly, but you need to understand the depths of what I'm getting at this morning is those things and what many are calling to be Christianity is far from it. This is not the gospel, the leading, fastest-growing religion, I believe, in the United States, if not the world, is not Christianity, it is not Islam, it is not Buddhism, it is not Hinduism, it is not Judaism, it is not New Ageism. It is actually called moralistic, therapeutic deism. Not to just slam big words at you, but you, you're going to hear this a lot from me. See, what's interesting about moralistic deism is that those five things that I just listed are the five pillars of that faith. And here's the thing, you can be Hindu and be a moralistic deist. You can be Christian, you can be Islam, you can be New Age, you can be Wiccan, you can be Baha'i, you can be any of those things and agree with those five pillars of that faith. And when I'm talking to students, I'll send you a survey to our, our email subscribers this week of, of things that I'm doing with my college students to let you hear what is taking place. Even uh, Lincoln Ear Ministries, uh, Gail and I, he sent me uh, a link to this. It's just frightening. Some surveys that just came out in regards to what many believe inside of the United States of America who are claiming to be followers of Jesus Christ, who are claiming that, that Jesus is the Lord and Savior of their life, and yet most of what they are claiming to believe is contrary to that of the Scripture. It's the largest growing religion in America. And where do they learn it? From their moralist, deistic parents who are modeling this in front of them all the time, who claim to have a gospel but deny its power who claim to have Jesus as their Lord and Savior, yet there's not much prayer going on. There's not much Bible reading going on. There's not much mission going on. There's not much redirection in in what we view and what's happening inside of a culture that's really transcribing from the gospel into their actual lives. But hey, this is what I've decided to be. This is what we are, and I get to be the God of even Christianity to dictate what is true and what is not true. This is the anti-gospel. And it doesn't matter if you're liberal or conservative. This is the belief of most college students. This is the belief of most high school students right now. Brothers and sisters, we need a new reformation. We need to, God once again to redirect us to what it means to be in Christ alone, in faith alone, by Scripture alone, in, in grace alone, for the glory of God alone. We need to, to come back to biblical Christianity, back to the gospel. I mean, how many times as a parent have you become and have I become frustrated dealing with the same issue over and over and over and over and over again in your child, that they just can't seem to stop doing whatever they're doing? Anybody? You know why, brothers and sisters? It's because there hasn't been a change in their hearts. And they continue to go back to that sin, continue to go back to that sin, continue to go back to that sin, continue to go back to that sin. To back, back to that sin. Why? Because they, they have not had a change in their hearts. We are more concerned with our child's compliance than we are more concerned with their heart. And God is concerned about their heart. Compliance or repentance or repentance. Gospel-centered parents want, want, want to understand the motivations and to teach the kids the motivations of their hearts. Our goal is not good kids. Our goal is gospel kids. Paul David Tripp says this, In my heart is the source of my sin problem. Then lasting change must also travel through the pathway of my heart it's not enough to alter my behavior or change my circumstances Christ transformed people by radically changing their hearts if the heart doesn't change the person's words and behavior may change temporarily because of an external pressure to or incentive the pain of discipline but when the pressure or incentive is removed the changes will disappear a commentator went on to say in other words if we if the threat of pain or of promise of reward is the only motivation my child will perform only in the presence of the threat or promise but the heart captured by God will increasingly do what is right even when the prospect is short term pain we will never get at the true sin sickness that is lying deep inside of our kids hearts by simply polishing the low hanging fruit. But we must get at the root of this. We've all asked our kids this question why did you do that? You know why. It's because they're a sinner in need of God's grace. You know the answer to that, parent. They're a sinner in need of God's grace. Jesus is after our motives. Parents need to be after their hearts of their kids and their hearts' motives. Obedience out of bondage is different than obedience out of delight. And that's what God wants for your kid. That should be the desire of your heart. And that's what God wants for us. So in conclusion... you'll be a Gospel-centered parent when you truly understand your identity. You'll be a Gospel-centered parent when you truly understand your identity. And what is your identity? You are the child. You are the child. You'll be a Gospel-centered parent when you understand that you are are the child. God is sanctifying your life by putting a shadow of how you act and respond. Did you get that? They're simply mirroring what they have learned from you and I. Sometimes I get really upset at my daughter, and I walk away from her, and I'm like, that's exactly the way that I act. Where did that gremlin learn that? She learned it from me. I often can easily point out the way she acts like her mama. Sometimes I see my own sin in her, right? But here, here's, here's the understanding is that, that, that God has, is sanctifying you parents and you pressing in. I know it's hard. I know it's tough. It's easy to become just lazy. It's just like, man, I don't want to do this again. I've spanked him five times today. Well, bring on number six because you love them. And that's what God is doing inside of us. Parenting allows you to see sin from God's perspective, which in turn causes you to see ourselves. Parents, God hates our kids' sin. He hates it, but guess what? He hates our sin too. Guess what? Kids' parents, everybody look at me. Kids, you know what you are? You are bad. You are bad kids. Every one of you. Dirty, rotten scoundrels. Parents, look at me. You're educated and worse because we can invent sins that our kids aren't capable of being that creative yet of. Parents, you're bad. We are bad. We are wretched, totally depraved, children. And yet God. Kids are bad. Parents are bad. But guess what? Everybody get this. Guess what? Jesus died for bad people. Jesus has died for bad people. In Mark ten fifteen, he says this, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God is like a child Um, of, of God, like a child, shall not enter it. So God even tells us to be kids. The most common label in all of Scripture, for those of us who are in Christ, is what? God's Children, your birth and new birth started by an act of grace, the grace of God. And a human child cannot exist on their own. Guess what? Those of us that are in child are in Christ are also completely dependent on someone to take care of us, and his name is Jesus. On your kids' worst of days, in regards to disobeying and dishonoring us, is only a shadow of how we as adults have disobeyed and dishonored God. Yet, get this, for those of us that are in Jesus, for those of us that are in Christ, on your most disobeying, disgusting, sinful, wretched moment, in God's discipline, he has never raised his voice at you. He has never disciplined you in anger. He's never looked at you with wrath in his eyes, but only love compassion and grace in god's discipline there is consequences but there will never be a cross never there will never be a cross if you guys heard that so it's where you shout hallelujah amen let's take up an offering i mean but we're so slow to get this there is consequences. All of the anger, all of the wrath that you and I deserved in punishment, he poured upon the cross of Jesus so that, yes, you will receive consequences. There will be collateral damage for you and I sin, but there will never be a cross, and that is what we deserve. Why? Because of Jesus, God is not angry with us. On the contrary, again, he is eternally happy with us because he sees the perfect finished work of Jesus. Because in the Father's heart, He made a promise to his people. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will be there. I will not abandon. I will not become tired of doing what is best for them. I I am both the author and the finisher, the protector of their faith. I am more dedicated to them arriving safely at home than they even know. I leave the 99 to go after one disobedient, dishonoring sheep. I stand in the window longing for my prodigal son or daughter to come home. And when he or she finally does, what do I do? I throw a party. Because my love for him is not contingent on what he or she has done, but on what I have done. And I have done it perfectly. So my son or daughter, being in heaven with God eclipses every waywardness of your sin so disobedient dishonoring rebellious religious child of mine may we run to the cross may we run to Jesus may we cling to the Father who is good and who is for you. Let's pray.